0: Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. On today's show, carbon taxes kick in this year. How will it affect you? As well, tougher penalties for distracted driving and the U.S. government still in shutdown mode. It's all coming up. Thanks for listening. Talking about the carbon tax and the impact it will have on Canadians as we move forward and they become implemented this year. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. So how has or how will life change for Ontarians moving forward this year without having a carbon tax?
1: (laughs) Without and then with, maybe. Yeah. So let's, let's just first clear this up. Uh, uh, Justin Trudeau said, if promises don't have a plan to handle carbon, we are going to impose a federal carbon tax. Now, he clarified last year that the date of imposition of this tax would be April 1st. So if you see any gasoline price jumps at the moment, it has nothing to do with the carbon tax. That would happen on April 1st. As well, his game plan is as follows. He takes in revenue from the carbon tax. He returns 90%, 9-0, 90% of it to you in the form of a rebate. The other 10% is used to do good things to help other people reduce carbon, like schools and universities and hospitals and what have you. Good. Now, the, the challenge, of course, is that, oh, nobody wants to pay more taxes, so he's actually going to give you your rebate as a, get this, prebate. He's going to give it to you early when you file your 2018 income taxes. He's going to give you a credit equal to what he thinks you will pay for the year ahead. It's a very fascinating way of doing this because, of course, he realizes there's an election in the fall. In the wings, we have a lovely person by the name of Doug Ford who says, Not so fast, Mr. Trudeau. I campaigned on getting rid of, quote, carbon taxes. He did that, Ontario, by eliminating the cap-and-trade system. So I, along with the province of Saskatchewan and their premier, we're going to take you to court. And so the first three months of 2019, it will be very interesting to see how will this uh, happen. Will we get a carbon tax? Will the provinces win out, or will the federal government... My best insight says this is actually a federal responsibility thanks to a federal treaty signed and that the provinces don't have a leg to stand on, but you'll still need 5 or $10 million in lawyers' fees to sort that out in the courts. Finally, to get to your question specifically, how would that have an impact on us? Well, the whole theory works as follows. If I want to get you to change your behavior, I need it to cost you something. Let's use an example close to home. Garbage. Do you remember those happy days, Scott, when you could put out any number of bags of garbage (laughs) at any time and they'd be picked up and transported? Well, our our garbage dump started to fill up, and we wanted people to recycle, either put them in the blue bin or, in some cases, if it's uh, organic waste, put it in the green bin. So how do we do that? Well, we limited you to only one bag a week. In some jurisdictions in Ontario, it's one bag every two weeks. If you really feel the need you have to put out more garbage, you can buy extra tags. And and so far, that system seems to have worked to get us to reduce the amount of garbage that we produce and, and divert more. Same idea goes with carbon taxes. If we charge you for carbon, then you're going to want to buy less of that commodity that costs you so much and either switch to an electric vehicle or drive less or use public transportation and change your behavior. That's the whole concept behind it.
0: So how, what sort of battle are we going to see in the next several months between the provinces and between federal leaders as an election is on the horizon next fall?
1: Yeah, so exactly. I think this is going to be very interesting high drama here. Doug Ford campaigned to get rid of carbon taxes. He got rid of cap and trade. Even though it wound up costing his money government, he's very proud of the fact. And in fact, just the other day, he tweeted out that you can thank me for all the low gas prices you're seeing. Although the reality is the carbon tax would add four and a half cents to a liter. Our gas prices are down 25 cents a liter because of world oil prices, nothing really that Doug Ford had any influence on, but he is so proud of that that he wants to leverage that. Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Progressive Conservative Federal Progressive Conservative Party, he's looking for some angle with an election coming up. What can he get get on Justin to try to turn the tide? And taxes are a great thing. Nobody wants to voluntarily pay more taxes. And, and we Canadians, it's an interesting thing when we survey people, We talk a good game. We we view ourselves as green and environmentally friendly as long as it doesn't cost us anything. And and funny things like garbage and recycling and green waste, well, you know, I suppose I pay for it in my taxes, but it all gets lost in the shuffle. Something that hits me directly at the pumps or with my natural gas bill won't be a popular effort. It will be interesting to see if people remember about their prebate when they go to vote in October.
0: Uh, Andrew Scheer making political hay of this in the new year. Uh, you know, a headline, a current headline in the CBC, Andrew Scheer begins new year with warning of skyrocketing carbon taxes. Yep. Is, this, is this going to resonate with Ontario voters?
1: Well, uh, you know, Doug Ford did ride in on a wave of popularism. And one of the things about popularism is that you leave me alone. You know, government should be smaller. Leave me alone. Do the minimum you have to. And that's, that's what took Donald Trump into office. That's what took Doug Ford into office. So there is a wave here that says that people may not be happy about this. And here's Justin Trudeau's problem. I, I think people are prepared to do something for the environment, but it has to be something simple. Look how long it's taken me to explain to you carbon taxes, and you're paying attention. Many electors are not paying attention. This is a very complicated solution to a problem. If there was just something easier or simple, but as I would say to many people, the easy, simple things are done. So this can give him uh, an edge, give him a wedge issue that he can use out there. Justin may also, by the way, give him more. Remember, this is the party that said we're only raising the deficit a little bit, and then we'll pay it down. Well, now we look like we're having permanent deficits for the next 20 years. <clears throat> there are some other things about, the, say, buying those airplanes, where we've got to reduce the Air Force, and we haven't signed a contract on those. And there, you know, There's lots of other things Justin may get picked on, but at the moment his popularity is still pretty good, uh, but expect there uh, be a lot of people hammering on that in the months ahead. Uh,
0: I, I had this discussion with my last guest uh, in regard to comparison to uh, the win liberals and what happened with them. I remember midway through the election, uh, there was a, a survey of what the most important issues were for Ontarians. And then you looked at Kathleen Wynn's platform and it was night and day. They just did not seem to resonate with what, unvo- what, what Ontario voters were thinking? Does Justin Trudeau run in? Could run, Justin Trudeau run into the same problem here? Is this a, a big enough issue? Is this a kitchen table issue for Canadians?
1: Yeah, that's a, you know that's a really wonderful question. And here's the other problem with that question: is will it be the kitchen table issue in October? You know, right now, no new tax. Uh, in fact, at the moment, the only big things that you're seeing is a small increase in what we're going to be contributing to the Canada Pension Plan. Slight reduction to the employment insurance. Uh, TFSA limits go up, but mind you, the cost of mail stamp goes up as well. And small business taxes go down from 10% to 9%. That's what we're seeing today. It will all depend upon how this rolls out in April, if it rolls out in April, and then how the electorate feels about it. If enough people stand up and and yell and scream about this, it could become the issue. Mind you, there could be other issues. You know, immigration continues to be a bit of a hot-button issue. And and I think his challenge is to come up with a platform and a budget in uh, March of this year that will really take him into that election. And that's the problem. We are very unpredictable people. What gets us to the polling booth in October may be nothing like what was getting us angry in March of this year.
0: Uh, What can the uh, – surveys have shown that Canadians care about the environment, they are concerned about, uh, as you said, in some ways, um, you know, until they have to pay for it. They're all for all this stuff. Uh, But they are certainly concerned about the environment. What can the Conservatives do that's different from what the Liberals are Ah,
1: doing? Ah, there's your magic question.
0: How does does that play out in the next nine months?
1: when, When you're the leader of the opposition party, you always have three standard arguments about whatever the issue happens to be. It's either too much, it's too little, or it's not well-timed. Great. So Andrew Shear gets up and says, look, this is too much. It's too much tax. The economy's not strong enough. Look, Alberta's already wheeling under these things. Don't do this. So then I should turn to Mr. Shear and say, okay, Mr. Shear, what do you want me to do instead? And interestingly, unlike Doug Ford, who apparently as of January 1st wants nobody in the Ontario government to talk about climate change, Andrew Scheer does acknowledge that climate change exists, and he also acknowledges that Canada has targets it has to live up to under the agreement signed in Paris a few years ago. However, he has been absolutely silent as to what his alternative plan is to reduce carbon. And so for the moment, I don't listen to him. That's me. I don't listen to him until he can give me an alternative. I, I have no patience for people who say, don't do this. I don't know what the right answer is, but don't do this. You've got to give me your solution. If I can hear it and then I can compare it, then I can make an intelligent decision.
0: How is this or how will this affect Canadian business moving forward?
1: Well, I don't think it's going to be a huge impact. Uh, uh, Remember, we lived for a good chunk of 2018 and even late 2017 with um, uh, cap and trade in Ontario, and I didn't see people rushing out the door Businesses also understand there's a cost of doing business. Now, the big question that you would raise is well, wait a minute, Marvin, if they're not doing this in the United States, doesn't that make a difference? And yes, it may be on the margin of where I put in a few more dollars, but GM didn't make his decision on closing Oshawa because of carbon taxes or lack of carbon taxes. It it was based more on on what we were buying as cars. Uh, On the other side, remember Elon Musk announced over the Christmas holidays that he was interested in maybe taking a look at the Oshawa plant to expand his operations into Canada and start producing electric vehicles up here. So it's a very dynamic time, and I think businesses... Understand that we need to do something. Um, Is it too much? You know, I'm sure there'll be some businesses, like trucking businesses, that will complain. It's going to cost them a lot more. If I'm Dell Computers or I'm uh, 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 Amazon, I'm not sure it's going to cost me all that much directly.
0: Uh, Easier to sell a carbon tax to Canadians than a cap-and-trade? Ah, well... (laughs) <laughs> because because <laughs> at the end of the day, as we said, the the surveys say that Canadians are concerned yeah. about this. Then where is the disconnect? Where it, and and I'm thinking it's they're not convinced. A, the money is being used to help the environment. And in instead is is being used to other gen, uh, you know, other general coffers and such. Governments yeah. all need money. They all they always need yeah. a revenue stream. Yeah. Is this about? Do you think that's where the skepticism lies?
1: Well, look at the gasoline tax. The whole purpose of a gasoline tax was to be invested into our roads. And then you find out they're not putting it into the roads. They're putting it into the general income. So people right to be skeptical. You know, personally, Scott, I prefer cap and trade, and and here's why. You set an initial cap. That's what Ontario did along with uh, Quebec and California. That isn't really where the benefit of cap and trade is. It takes 10 to 20 years, but over time, you reduce the cap. You say, here's the cap this year. It's 100 units. Oh, next year is only 95 units. The year after that is 92 units, and over time, you force us to reduce the volume of of pollution that we're putting out a carbon tax does work the same way i'm charging you for the pollution that you're putting out but in theory if i'm a wealthy person i say oh well it's just an inconvenience and i'll spend the money and i won't change my behavior i believe cap and trade changes behavior but Forgive me, I'm going to sound egotistical here. I'm a fairly well-educated person who, for his living, works in academia where I study these kind of complex things. Cap-and-trade is very difficult to explain to the average citizen. A carbon tax is actually easier to explain, but as soon as I call it a tax... Oh, in fact, I think it's interesting that the federal liberals are not calling it a carbon tax. They're calling it a pollution tax. They think that might help people better understand it. Both of them are very complicated. I think the better system is cap and trade, but it's even harder to explain to the average person.
0: Is all of this making Canada a leader in renewable industries?
1: Uh, not yet. Uh, I would certainly say many European nations are well ahead of us on this. Uh, I thought it was interesting that, again, over the holidays, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, the man who was running for president of the United States, uh, tweeted out a story about the Nanticoke power generation as a great victory for the environment, closing of a coal-powered plant, the demolition of that plant, and now going to be replaced with some solar power panels in that area uh, and wind power in the area. He He saw this as a wonderful move. I'm not sure we understand uh, that this is, is what we're trying to do instead. Uh, remember, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to heap scorn on Kathleen Wynne, but part of what the liberal strategy was was to get into more renewable energy. But windmills were met with skepticism. Solar power is met with skepticism. Uh, the Clean Air Alliance, who was thrilled that we got rid of coal, is very skeptical of nuclear power. We, 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 one thing we need is we need energy. Well, uh, this Christmas season, lots and lots of new electronic devices were given out as Christmas presents. They've got to give that electricity somewhere. So we need to generate electricity. I personally think uh, renewables are a great way to go, uh, and in the future will probably be the only way to go. But how do you bridge from the one economy that we understand to another economy? That is always the challenge.
0: Uh, Again, I remember when the wind turbines were coming in and asking the uh, energy minister at the time, where are the jobs? They would point to the Siemens plant, which is now uh, closed. So uh, are we, because clearly we're such a small country, we're not really making a dent when it comes to pollution. I mean, let's be honest about that. Um, We're we're barely making a dent at all. So, you know, the, the incentive was, well, at least if we... If we become really great at renewable industries, that we can sell that technology and, and make money that way. But again, are are we leading in this? Are we Have we made an improvement in the last 10 years? Well, I think we've made
1: an improvement in our environment. And certainly if you're an asthmatic uh, walking around in Hamilton, you can remember days where you couldn't be outside, yeah. where we had that haze hanging over us. Uh, and that's gone because of the reduction in coal being burned, not just in Ontario, but in the whole uh, valley around us here in the United States. So I, I think people can understand it on some level, but they can't trace a cost to the benefit. I mean, what did that cost me versus what is the benefit I got from all of that? You know, just to go back to that question of pollution, I get this one a lot as well, that people say, well, why, why is Canada doing this? Look at China. Look at China. And I say, yes but do you understand that for our population we produce three times the carbon per person that china produces thank god china's not using us as a model or we really would have a global problem it's not that we're such a big overall emitter into the environment but per person we're huge and and if we're going to point a finger at others i think you can only do that when your own house is pretty clean and this is where the scandinavians or people in germany and people in france can point a finger Decent-sized population, but very low per person emitters of carbon. We have a significant way to go, and, and I, I think is that just, due to
0: geographics, though, Marvin? To I some mean, extent. because we're such a small population in such a large country.
1: Right. And so, you know, we we tend to drive more in Europe. They tend to use much more public transportation. We're in the north where we get colder weather, so we tend to burn more more energy to heat. I'm not suggesting that we can ever match some of those numbers, but I think we can do something to reduce them. It's a bit like, you know, complaining about litter. And well, I'm not going to pick up the trash on my yard, because nobody else in the neighborhood's picking it up, and then your whole neighborhood looks like trash, mm. someone's got to step forward and say, it's the right thing to do, it may cost me some time and energy, but it's the right thing to do. If you really look forward 100 years to the year 2100, what kind of planet do we want to leave the children and grandchildren? And that's why it doesn't bother me. Now, I know I'm fairly well off, and I understand all this, it doesn't cost me all that much, but... I think we owe it to the children to do the right thing, even if there's no incentive until China and other people sort around. Let's do our part.
0: Where will, uh, 20 years from now, how will we look back at this, this time you we're know, in now?
1: You know, I think that's very interesting. Again, I think we could be, could be, and this is a very key word, could be on the cusp of something. If you believe part of the scientific community, they say we've only got 10, 15 years to reverse this tide of growing carbon dioxide pollution and increasing temperatures and climate change, what have you, if we don't do something then, then we'll get past some tipping point and there's nothing we can do at that point. In 20 years, we'll know one way or the other if they were right.
0: That's my thought exactly, Marvin. I mean, we'll all be sitting here saying, well, wasn't this supposed to come to an end by now? Wasn't this supposed to? Like, Will we know the answer by then?
1: I would like to think so. You know, I, I, I for instance, I just look at our weather this year, by now we've normally we had a significant snowfall over the Christmas holidays. We had a big rainstorm instead on new year 's eve. Uh, I, you know I see signs around me in my own life of how things have gotten warmer in Southern Ontario. Uh, I know historically we've had ice ages where things have been very cold and what have you, but I just, I do worry that we're getting past a tipping point, and once you've passed it, there's no point looking back and saying, hmm, if we'd only done something back in 2018, we'd be better off, but now it's 2030, let's slather on the sunscreen and and wear heavy clothes outdoors. I, I, you know, I think we have an opportunity to try to do something now, and that's why I'm in favor of doing it.
0: Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at DeGroote uh, De School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As of yesterday, there are now tougher penalties for texting and driving in Ontario. Also, prior to Christmas, uh, the the laws in and around... Uh, drunk driving and breathalyzer testing, this sort of thing, also changed. To talk about all of this, Angelo Chico is with us, General Manager of Young Drivers of Canada and on the line with us now. Angelo, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Happy New Year to you and all. Happy New Year to you, Angelo. Thanks for taking the time today. So how is life different now if you are a driver of a motor vehicle in this province? The
2: exact same and very different. The exact same that Distracted driving has always been illegal. Driving while impaired has always been illegal. What's vastly different is the consequences of being uh, caught and convicted. So it's always been dangerous and illegal. It's just the consequences to you or the person who's paying for the insurance on that vehicle or to the likelihood of you being employed after 90 days of license suspension or something like that, that's what's different.
0: So let's start with texting and driving. Uh, now it's, it, it didn't take long for texting and driving to surpass uh, drinking and driving as far as uh, fatalities uh, in the country. If you're caught texting or distracted driving of some sort, uh, what's changed now?
2: So, what's changed as first time offenses that you're going to lose your license and um you know it's can, it could be a thirty or a ninety day suspension uh if you're a novice new driver. However, if you have your full license, there's going to be up to a thousand dollars, three demerit points you know a three day suspension so the the fines are a lot stricter. But really, what we're trying to do uh, is just get across the message that distracted driving um, is the most dangerous thing you're going to do all day. The reality is that yes, people impaired driving, be it THC in their blood or or alcohol in their blood, yes, that does occur. But the most common type of crash is going to be as a result of distracted driving, and that could be from trying to brush your teeth while driving to trying to text while driving or picking up the phone and putting it to your ear while driving.
0: So uh, a vehicle, uh, or sorry, a a, three-day license suspension and three demerit points, I mean, that's massive. It is, and so again, I
2: think uh, we spoke about this maybe earlier in the year. If I had, if I was in charge of everything in the entire world, I would have kept the um, consequences the same and put more emphasis on um, on charging people, on enforcement. My point being that even if it was, you know, a $500 fine and you knew that nine times out of ten you would get caught, distracted, or cell phone usage and texting and driving would stop tomorrow. What the reality is is people put that weight, uh, those weights on the scale, risk and reward, and they know that the consequences are pretty severe now, but they think, ah, I can get away with it. I'm really good at multitasking. I'll just touch the phone, I'll glance down and no one's going to catch me. However, there's a lot more technology and more um, better surveillance coming your way, like police officers. And so you're not sure, stuff. you're
0: not convinced that necessarily higher fines and uh, you know a, a three-day license suspension and three demerit points uh, for a first offense, um, y- you're not sure if that's the answer or not?
2: I believe it will get everyone's attention, and it got you to call me today. Mm. And I taught a class of 22 this last week during the break. And everyone goes, ooh, ah, those are very serious consequences. And they are. However, when I asked every single person, every 16 to 25-year-old in that class, had been in a vehicle within the past month where someone was actually picking up their phone or trying to text Hmm. or doing something that is just out and out illegal. Uh,
0: Before Christmas as well, increasing in fines for uh, alcohol-related offenses, and more importantly, um, police can now demand a breath test, whether they have a a reason to suspect you of being inebriated or not. How is this? Your thoughts on all of this?
2: Well, again, driving impaired was illegal yesterday, and it's definitely illegal today. However, the ability for um, officials to determine whether you're impaired has gotten much easier for them. And you don't really need reasonable cause anymore. And so... For the vast majority of Canadians, everyone, this isn't going to really be an issue. It just may be a bit of an inconvenience if uh, you're pulled over and um, you're clean and sober, as you should be. However, it will make their job a lot easier for taking that small proportion of people off our roadways, because it can be quite devastating to society at large, Uh, when someone thinks that they're above the law, and it's been harder to maybe to um, capture those people. Now it's going to be a lot easier. You don't need probable cause. For those of us who maybe Santa put some gummy bears in your uh, Christmas stocking with THC, and though it's legal to be maybe consuming or smoking, you have to realize point there are two nanograms of THC in each milliliter of blood. That's like one toque. So when you're at uh, the Super Bowl weekend and you and your buddies are sharing a joint, just one toke you can't be driving. And that was illegal before. It's illegal now, but it's going to be way easier for the police to be pulling you over for alcohol or THC or any type of distraction while driving
0: so are these a deterrent you know we prior to um prior to christmas we saw york regional police talk about uh publishing names of those that had been charged uh even though they hadn't gone to trial yet um you know obviously this was the you know the chief's frustration in 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 pulling over a lot of people who were impaired over the course of a weekend there um, that being said, is it that easy? I mean, if it was just a case of publishing everybody's names, wouldn't we be doing that by now? Wouldn't that be working? Yeah, um, and and, and is, this in, is this any different? Is this, is this taking the person that's blotto off the road, or is this just making life terrible for the person that had a glass of wine at dinner?
2: So that's the tough one now. And the person has had a glass of wine at dinner, it's a bit more... Regulated. We've got a lot of research uh, on blood alcohol concentration, and the roadside screening devices could determine whether you have, um, you're at, at 50 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood, or you're at 80. And at 80, really serious consequences. At 50, less serious, but still consequences. If you're at 30 or 20, you get a pat on the back and maybe a warning and off you go with thc though the roadside screening devices really just show the presence of either there is some thc or no there is not so typically then a standard or a roadside field sobriety test would be um, performed on you and you're, you're just not going to have a good day. The reality is if you have any THC or you've been drinking and driving, your day isn't going to be relaxing because that's probably why you went out to your buddy's house or to the party and had a drink. You're trying to relax. Having to drive after uh, drinking alcohol or consuming uh, cannabis, your day is not going to be any more relaxing. So, <laughs> programs like this will get the message across that remember why um, you're in that vehicle it's to get home safely.
0: Angelo Dicico has been with us general manager of Young Drivers of Canada uh, of Young Drivers of Canada. Angelo, thank you for the time. Much appreciated.
2: Happy New Year, everyone.
0: Drive safe. All right, you too. Thanks for the time. Let's bring in Jeffrey Reed, Hamilton attorney, get his take on all of this. Jeffrey, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well,
3: Happy New Year, Scott, uh, and you're welcome.
0: And Happy New Year to you too, Jeff. Uh, So, you know, let's talk about first the the changes to uh, the drunk driving laws just prior to Christmas where there is no reasonable cause needed in order to administer a test. Many have said that this may not stand up in court. Your thoughts on that?
3: Well, uh, I'd be inclined to agree with that. There's certainly going to be an issue, and it's absolutely definitely going to be uh, tested in the courts. And um, it's really hard to know, of course, uh, how that'll work out. uh, uh, Even with a crystal ball, I think you'd have a tough time. But I I think that the the, the, the real... sort of battleground is going to look a little like this. Um, We have uh, a a right not to be arbitrarily detained. That's just a way of saying, you know, the police and our authorities can't go around stopping citizens without having some proper cause. And um, a proper cause means like a good legal cause so uh if, if they can not just stop you if you 're operating a motor vehicle, we know that because under the Highway Traffic Act, they can do that to see that if you 've got proper insurance and license and registration and that your vehicle is safe. We also know that um, if there's any reason to think that uh, there's uh, uh some alcohol involved uh, they can uh, you know uh, make some further inquiries but the problem with this law, as I understand it, and I, I I'll admit that I'm not really thoroughly versed in it yet, so it's really so new and so complicated, but but it seems to me that, uh, that without having any um, uh, reason to think that a person has been consuming alcohol or is under the influence of anything like that, they can just make demands for breath or even blood samples. So so what's going to happen is that's um, that's going to be challenged as a violation of our right to not be arbitrarily detained, not be arbitrarily detained. And I, I think that there's a sporting chance that the higher courts are going to say that looks arbitrary, but the, then the, then the battle's going to shift. So so if the courts say yeah that looks like it's a violation of that right, then the next thing is that the government can try and defend its legislation, saying well even though it's a violation, it's justifiable. And so we've seen that in a number of cases, like the uh, roadside uh, excuse me the uh, uh, ride programs and so forth and in that and that and now it's a lot more problematic because that's when the government says look it's a real pressing concern they'll they'll play the card about how uh, you know there's a carnage on the roads we 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 hear that phrase a lot um that, uh, you know, drinking and driving is serious, it causes great harm, um, and and it's got to be sort of tackled effectively. And sometimes the courts will say, right, Um, so to a limited extent and limited circumstances, we'll save a law that would otherwise uh, violate a right. And I think that's where the – and it's going to take a while to get through the courts because these things will start, of course, in the uh, lower courts, um, in the trial courts, uh, whether it's the Ontario Court of Justice or sometimes the Superior Court of Justice, and then they'll move up to the appeal levels. And when they start to hit the levels like the uh, uh, Court of Appeal for a province in our, in our province, the Ontario Court of Appeal, or beyond that, eventually, to the Supreme Court of Canada, that's when we really start to get some definition and we get some real guidelines that can help us. Otherwise, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be uh, a real question.
0: Who will challenge this, Jeff? I mean, the person who was tested... Uh, without any sort of reasonable cause, but then is you know is proved to be positive. I mean, then right. obviously that's a pretty gray area. So is it the person that was tested? But is clean that's going to sue? Or that's going to say, "Hey, well, what are you pulling me over for? I got nothing yeah. on me, and and you're wasting my time here."
3: It's a good question. So I'll stick to my knitting. I practice only in uh, criminal law, so I, I won't talk about whether there are any uh, possible, uh, you know, civil causes of action. I can imagine there might possibly be, but but where it's going to come up in reality is this person gets um, charged with a criminal offense, Um, could be uh, driving with more than 80 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood, that's a so-called over 80 uh, offense, it could be impaired driving, it could be some variation of all these things, and what they're going to say is, wait a minute, uh, you, you do, to prove this, you've got to get your evidence in that I was over the legal limit, or, or whatever uh, evidence you've got um, in relation to this. And how did you get that evidence? Because you stopped me, and you stopped me. I will argue uh, this is the person who's being charged. So they will say, I will argue that you stopped me arbitrarily because of this because of this law. And that's how it will come engaged. So it'll it'll come through somebody who's been charged with a criminal offense, and as amongst their defenses raises this issue of arbitrary detention.
0: Will this change how police conduct themselves on these tests? Because at the end of the day, a trained police officer is going to know whether a person or have a good idea whether a person's impaired or not. Um, are they going to set themselves up for something like this? Well, I, I, th-
3: um, I don't know how the police are going to deal with it. And, of course, uh, there's a zillion different uh, police uh, departments or services, uh, municipal, provincial, and, and, and even federal, when you think about the RCMP. And they all sort of have uh, involvements in their different places and jurisdictions. But I suspect, in general, the police are probably going to be fairly guarded because they know that that kind of issue is going to come up. And so I suspect that they probably will for the most part be relying upon uh some in in indications that there um that, that support like the odor of alcohol and breath uh, uh uh difficulties with coordination uh bad driving some combinations of these things plus um i think you were referring also with your uh previous uh, guest uh, 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 Angelo decheco was it um, and he talked about the roadside screening uh, devices, that, the, the so-called uh, uh, um, uh, roadside screening devices, where they can do a quick check to see if it's worth further investigation. I suspect that police are going to be fairly c- guarded about that. Otherwise, they're going to wind up... Uh, sort of inviting this kind of a a challenge, and uh, and, and I'm I'm not sure that they want to unnecessarily do that. So so my guess is they probably are going to have uh, a safety net uh, of evidence in the sense that they stopped a person, but then they uh, moved ahead uh, with it by, um, you know, uh, some grounds that would otherwise have survived.
0: So are we going to see scenarios where, you know, much like at a border crossing where every fifth car would get stopped, or or searched or uh, or asked questions or such. Will every fifth driver gets a breathalyzer? Whether this, that, or the other.
3: Well, it, it may, maybe. But I mean, we we see that to some extent in the uh, in the ride programs. Yeah. But 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 then when they go beyond that, they they don't do any. Uh, what, what I'll use lawyer talking. Take any intrusive measures like demand breath samples, coordination test, yada yada yada. Uh, unless they've got some ground. So what's the first thing they ask when there's uh, when, uh, when, uh, a ride program? You know, uh, good evening, sir. Have you been drinking? Right. So, so this this is where it starts from. And then in the course of that, if they get some basis, they smell alcohol, the person admits it, whatever there is, that'll provide a foundation for them in the current law or at least the immediately past current law. So now the question is uh, not so much will they be stopping every fifth car, because they could already do that pretty much under a wide program. What The question is when they stop every fifth car, whether or not they see anything, will they be saying, all right, that's it, uh, let's, uh, let's take some samples That's now. what I'm saying, like I, every I fifth car just breathes yeah. into it. Well, l- well, they might, but, but I suspect that that's, um, well, that comes back to what I, I, I don't know, it'll be their practice. I, I suspect they'll be one a little bit more guarded or more conservative than that, because don't forget, while they're busy d- 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 sort of, I'm now I'll use my language, arbitrarily demanding, without having any grounds to believe a person's under the influence, who knows how many other cars are w- drifting through that spot, not being properly watched because, and maybe they maybe the ones that you, you should be stopping. So, you know, it's a question of how they want to mm. deploy their resources.
0: Good point. Uh, what about uh, the new texting and driving or distracted driving laws? Um, thousand dollars more than yeah. double the current fine yeah. and a, th- a three-day license suspension yeah. and three demerit points. Your thoughts? Well, and that's well, I, just the beginning.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm inclined to, uh, uh, of course, uh, I may have to take a different position in a professional capacity defending somebody, but I'm inclined as a citizen to think that they're probably uh, well uh, based in the sense that um, um, the, the, the people are still. Uh, driving distracted. Remember, driving distracted in this sense just means using a handheld telecommunication device. It right. doesn't mean like you're, uh, you know, having a sandwich, which which can very well be distracting, or even using your Bluetooth device, which may still be distracting. Um, maybe that's a whole different issue. But but the most uh, difficult one is this question of y'all you know, using the phone when when it's in your hand. And um, I, I think there's been enough uh, to see that uh, the, the, it's still too prevalent. So what they're just doing is they're kicking up the deterrence level. They're saying, okay, so, uh, you know, uh, uh, the punishment hasn't uh, been uh, severe enough yet to make people really think twice so, and, and, and reduce the amounts of this. So we're, we're going to kick it up. And I, I'm inclined to think that there's probably a pretty good basis for that. And, um, you know, who knows? If, it's, if it does stop that, that'll probably be a good thing.
0: Can you compare these two offenses to- Distracted driving and something like drinking and driving. Uh, obviously, now distracting driving claims more lives.
3: Well, uh, uh, I mean, they both can be very dangerous in the wrong yeah. circumstances, but but I, I, I'm inclined to think that the distracted driving is probably the more prevalent of the two. Um, th- th- w- there are two different things going on there, though. So in the, in the in the drinking and driving laws that we were talking about a moment ago, the, the issue now becomes: Do they have the right to take these intrusive measures to stop a person to continue with Investigating without having any grounds—that's that issue. The, the distracted driving laws are based on; uh, those, those are sentencing issues. Those right. are sort of based on the thing. Look, we had the evidence; we proved the case. Either the person admitted, it or we proved it anyways. So now, what's the consequence? And we're kicking up the consequence because we want to say that it's—it's um, it's just too dangerous. To uh, we've got to get people to take notice, sit up, and, and just you know, stop driving around while they're um, on their phones.
0: Jeffrey Reed has been with us, Hamilton attorney, talking about, as of yesterday, tougher penalties now for distracted driving in Ontario. Could see a fine of $1,000 and a three-day license suspension. Jeff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're
3: appreciate welcome, it. and once
0: again, a Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900CHML. The U.S. government, uh, oh yeah, it's been shut down. It's in its 12th day. What is the latest on this? And Canada heading into a federal election this year. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thank you so much for the time. Happy New Year.
4: And Happy New Year to you, Scott.
0: All right, let's start with the U.S., then we'll come up uh, to Canada. I remember uh, way back when seeing a clip of uh, Paul Ryan reading Green Eggs and Ham during a filibuster in the United States, and I think that pretty much a tipping point for a lot of Americans saying, what the heck is going on here? Uh, Donald Trump campaigning on draining the swamp, stopping the dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Are we there yet as we head into 2019?
4: (laughs) Well, filibusters, it's interesting you mentioned it, are kind of interesting if you look at the history of them, from people such as Paul Ryan reading Green Eggs and Ham, as you correctly said, to Rand Paul whipping through 900 pages of the tax reform bill. So there are lots of interesting examples of that. But yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I think that certainly for U.S. politics, we're going to enter into another, well, two-year period Where if people thought it was zany and crazy to begin with from two thousand sixteen to two thousand eighteen, they see nothing yet because twenty nineteen and twenty twenty are gonna be pretty maddening in the sense that you now have a break between the two houses. Uh the Democrats now control the House of Representatives and the Republicans still have the Senate, albeit with a slightly bigger majority than before. And you have a US president who, as you said, is in day twelve of a government shutdown that well, quite frankly, is nowhere near ending at this stage. So I think you're looking at a point in time where American politics is just going to go off into some pretty wild directions. And while filibusters may sound actually probably the simplest way to handle them, I think it's going to be quite fascinating to see what happens over the next little while a, as the Democrats obviously start to jiggle, well, they're going to move things around to some extent and at least try to put themselves in a position where they can put somebody up against Donald Trump in 2020, because quite frankly, the name's being bandied about, and only one person has declared thus far, Elizabeth Warren. I mean, none of those people are going to even have much of a chance against Trump. And secondly, you're going to it's going to be interesting to see how the Democrats and Republicans are going to be able to function, because... What we're seeing right now, the government shutdown is probably the tip of the iceberg for the next couple of years.
0: So how will we compare those first couple of years to the last couple of years when this is all over? Will we look at those first, those first two as his most productive?
4: Hard to say. Um, certainly when a president of any political stripe has control of everything, that includes the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the judiciary, that being the Supreme Court of the United States, Plus, they control the White House, obviously. That's when you're, so, you're usually at your most productive because there's very little opposition, typically, to your ideas, your policies, your concepts, whatever bills that you want to pass, etc. But what we found with Donald Trump for his first couple of years is that even with all this control that he had, He was basically fighting around not only with the Democrats, but also the people that he's supposed to be nominally representing or being a part of, which are the Republicans. Yes, he got a lot of things through, and certainly he got a lot of legislation at least discussed and or passed, so it was a productive couple of years, but also it had just a lot of turmoil, mostly caused by the president and his incessant tweeting and many of his comments, fighting with the media, uh, different, you know, touring around the United States when he was giving speech after speech with sound bites that were played for days. It was a very imperfect couple of years. Now, what we have is a scenario where the Democrats control one of the two houses and they will for the rest of the two years, which means that anything that Donald Trump and his administration thought was difficult to get through in the first couple of years is going to be a hundred times harder for the next couple so i think you're going to see a lot of banding about a lot of fighting very little bipartisanship in fact probably none at all and you're going to see the democrats joust with this president as much as they possibly can to either weaken him or to weaken the republican party not only in the senate but those who will try to run for the house of representatives and try to take back some of those seats that they lost and you're going to see a lot of other different scenarios that are going to pop up from time to time. But will it be the most productive two years in the previous, uh, for Donald Trump in his first term? Yes, I think the first two years would probably be counted, quote-unquote, as the most productive. These next two, I think is going to be very difficult for him to get legislation through, unless he's willing to walk the same line that the Democrats are, in terms of more government intervention, more social spending, and things like that, which will not suit his own base, that being Republicans and just Trump supporters in general.
0: We saw in the first couple of years him blame the Democrats, even though he had the majority of control. Now that he doesn't, will he just simply blame the Democrats for everything? I mean, he's been doing that anyway.
4: Right, exactly. It'll be more of the same that way, and it's the easiest strategy that you have, let's say none of this had happened the previous 2 years it's always easy to for a president to go against his opposition if there are problems in terms of putting certain policies or bills through and say that they're to blame so no matter what trump will blame them but you know you have to also be realistic about it in the present scenario that we're looking at where the two major parties control one house apiece and you have a president of the united states who for the most part, you know, works toward, towards at least ensuring that Republicans are somewhat happy with them or mostly happy with them, depending on which state they live in. I think that in the end, you will basically see an us versus them scenario where the us before was probably president trump against everybody else he's now going to try and obviously push as much as he possibly can against his basic political opponents the democrats to ensure that anything that doesn't get through whether it be the border wall with mexico that we're talking about of which the funding is one of the big hold-ups and causing this government shutdown right now there's some things that obviously will pop up over the next year or two which will be part of donald trump's reelection strategy before the twenty twenty presidential election i think you'll see the democrats blamed even more than they've been the past couple of years where once in a while you occasionally saw Donald Trump either frustrated or blaming Republicans for doing certain things with his legislation that he wasn't pleased with.
0: Will people uh, fall for his reasoning on I, I don't control anything now? That's because you elected Democrats. Um, uh, you know my hands are now tied behind my back. That being said, will Americans say respond by saying, "Well, in the first two years, you didn't get the wall
4: built." Right. Well, look, there obviously is a legitimate point to it, because obviously if the Democrats control one house and they can just fight them, you know, tooth and nail all the way through, it makes it very, very difficult for a president of the United States like Donald Trump to put his legislation through. But you're right. For the past couple of years when the Republicans controlled everything, he still struggled to put certain uh, bills and, and ideas through, and he had a lot of pushback from Republican supporters or people who were either formally or still belong to his own caucus. Like, for example, we still had that anonymous writer who wrote that op-ed for the New York Times who we still haven't revealed, we still don't know that person's yeah. name, who apparently has has is, is formed some sort of a resistance, quote-unquote, in the White House, against everything that Donald Trump stands for. Now, that may be complete nonsense, we don't know, but we know that there's at least an element in the White House, and maybe one person, and maybe more, who's displeased with this president. You know, again, this is a very different scenario for Donald Trump, and I think if he found the first two years of his presidency difficult at times, and I'm sure privately he did, He's going to find it even more difficult now, not just because the Democrats are, you know, very much to the left now politically, far right. more so than they've ever been historically, and will obviously push back against this president, who they distrust or either dislike, and just try to ensure that he basically is hamstrung for the remainder of his two years and maybe try to weaken him enough for 2020. I think that Trump will also find that even amongst Republicans, you know, there's not going to be an enormous amount of challengers, I don't believe, in terms of at least the Republican presidential primaries. There might be one person here, one person there who chooses to run against them. I know everyone is talking right now about Mitt Romney's op-ed in The Washington Post, right. which was fairly critical of the U.S. president. But at the same time, you have to be realistic. Mr. Romney has already done this twice. He lost to John McCain in 2008 for the Republican presidential nomination. He won it in 2012 but lost to Barack Obama in the presidential election. There's only so much opposition that can legitimately go against a sitting president who now has control of most of the 50 states, at least in terms of the people he's put in place to sort of run the associations and make sure that they're all kind of linked up to him directly. But it's going to be a fascinating time no matter what. And U.S. politics is always interesting or intriguing. I think it'll be even more so for the next two years. How, how are, are Americans
0: processing the shutdown? Uh, we all remember the meeting there at the White House with uh, Schumer and Pelosi. And, and he said, I'm owning it. I'll own it. And then, of course, as soon as it happened, he blamed it on the Democrats. Of how, how, how is this going to play out? I mean, can he leverage a wall out of this?
4: It's gonna be hard, um, especially because the amount of money that he now needs for this wall, which yes is steel you know, steel slats more than a wall actually today. If you've looked at the I would say fairly amateurish drawing that we actually saw that that he posted a couple of weeks ago. But if nothing else, at least it gives us an idea of what he's thinking about, or at least what he wants the, the wall to be, so to speak. Um, I think that for the government shutdown itself, I think it it, look, it depends on the person. Obviously, people affected directly by the shutdown are frustrated. They don't know when they're going back to work. You know, a lot of them have these visions that it could, they could be out for a month, two months while this battle continues. And obviously, someone has to give ground, meaning that somebody has to blink, Scott. This president wants his funding for the border wall with Mexico. And he's basically said, and I think he is actually telling the truth because as we're heading into two weeks now, that he's just going to sit there and wait and wait it out until he gets the money that he needs for his border wall. The Democrats on the other side don't believe in the border wall, even if they do believe in border security, which some do and some don't care quite as much about. And they just obviously they feel it's a complete waste of time. They dislike the, the idea of a border wall in general. They either think it's racist or it's a foolish maneuver or whatever, and they're just going to stand pat. So someone eventually has to blink, and the question is who does it and how long this goes on for. But for the American people in general, the frustration is going to be, Not that they assume that there will be a lot of bipartisan legislation in Washington, because those sorts of days are basically over, and I think we understand that. It's now a question of can the Democrats and Republicans nominally work together to ensure that the government operates on a day-to-day basis? Depends how long this shutdown lasts for. If it lasts for another two weeks to four weeks, people are going to get furious. As of right now, everyone's gone through Christmas, New Year's, and they're going to wait it out and see if maybe it can end pretty quickly. Trump is meeting, as you know, this week with a number of powerful officials and leaders from both the Democrat and Republican parties who will sit this week as Congress resumes on Thursday. So that meaning in itself will obviously be interesting because it'll at least give a bit of an indication of where everybody stands but if it's as bad as you alluded to initially, which was the, the public meeting that Pelosi, Schumer had with Trump and nominally with Mike Pence, who was sitting in the background, if that's basically what's going to happen at this private meeting, I mean, this shutdown could last for many more weeks. And that's going to make the American people either more fearful or more frustrated with this situation.
0: Getting back to you you made the comment about the uh, the column that Mitt Romney did. Um yeah. do, obviously Republicans still divided. How does that change things? How does is this just more sour grapes? How is this going to affect things moving forward?
4: Well, look, I mean, obviously Scott, people who are either what we would call anti-Trump or never Trumpers are looking to something that Mitt Romney, you know, like a Mitt Romney for being critical Of the US president and that being Romney being critical before he re-enters the Senate as the junior senator from Utah a lot of people are saying well this is the sort of thing that Republicans needed to motivate themselves but if you look at the history of Mitt Romney Especially his direct history with Donald Trump. The past two to two and a half years, it's been sort of like a love-hate relationship, literally, from the start. Romney was very critical, very briefly, of Donald Trump when he ran for president and did not support him. Then spoke out against him all through... Donald Trump's successful victory in the presidential primaries and then the actual presidential election against Hillary Clinton. Then they had a détente for a short period of time and Mitt Romney was actually considered for the important position of Secretary of State in Trump's cabinet. In the end, ultimately, he didn't go for him. It went quiet for a little while. Then Romney decided he was going to get back into politics and decided to run in Utah where he has since settled. Donald Trump then endorsed him <laughs> during his his senatorial run, which wasn't a big deal one way or the other because being a Republican in, in Utah, you're pretty safe. But still, it was sort of seen as a moment where the two of them kind of got together. So he, you know, that endorsement maybe added a couple of extra percent. I mean, it was pretty obvious that Romney would win it easily, but now we have today. After all of that, Romney has literally gone full circle and is back to sort of blasting away to some extent at Donald Trump. And I'm not saying that his op-ed, which you can read in the Washington Post, was vicious from you know from A to Z, but it was, uh, it was a shot that I don't think a lot of people saw coming, not at least in Romney's early days before he'd even taken his seat in the U.S. Senate. And I think that just basically has sort of fired up people who want to be fired up But the reality is that romney and trump have been all over the map the past two and a half years if this is the sort of shot that they think is going to be heard around the united states or around the world if you wish it's not because romney is not really an effective critic there are effective critics in the republican party he just doesn't happen to be one of them so i think they're basically putting a lot of eggs into one basket But it's a basket where the eggs have been cracked for quite a while. At what point do Americans
0: ask themselves if they're happy with the president?
4: I think they've been asking themselves that for quite a while, Scott, to be honest with you. I think they've been asking it since Trump became president and after his inauguration on January 20th, 2017. I mean, I, I think that happens with any U.S. president. But again, with Donald Trump, I think one of the great advantages he has more so than other Republicans before him is that the Democratic Party today is in disarray mm. like, like that's a key thing that a lot of people outside the United States seem to forget everyone focuses on how much distrust or anger there is in the US against Donald Trump and they also ignore the fact that he has lots of millions of supporters too but the democratic party has been a mess for a while ideologically they're a mess financially they're a mess and they have way too many chiefs and too few indians so to speak when it comes to trying to figure out who is the nominal head of this party or of this movement and for that reason it actually becomes very difficult as i mentioned earlier for the democrats to then pick someone to run against donald trump in twenty twenty because there are so many camps within the democratic party right now All sort of fighting one another to try to either take a centrist point of view and try to, you know, bring back some of the people that Donald Trump took from them in the 2016 presidential election. You have people way off to the hard left who are really sort of trying to fight their way and, and change the whole nature of the Democratic Party from its very beginnings or its early roots. And for that reason, Donald Trump basically, who will not have, I think, too difficult a primary if he has to run one against anyone, i think he can actually relax build a platform with his senior advisors and watch to see if the democrats can all get on the same page Mm. which is debatable at this point or whether they basically just blow up from within and if that's the case donald trump who kind of got lucky in twenty sixteen that he really got a got someone like hillary clinton to run against who really was not the best candidate the democrats could have put up Mm. she was part of a party machine that's been around since the nineties and she was not the respectable cog in the wheel it was actually her husband For that reason, he might be in actually a very decent position to be reelected in 2020 unless someone like a Joe Biden opts to run against him, where then I think it would be a good battle.
0: Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media, syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times. As always, Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Happy New Year.
4: Happy New Year to you. Take care.
0: This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.